Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Welcome to Fertility Cafe. I'm your host, Eloise Drain. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Reverend Dr. Stacy Edwards Dunn. Reverend Stacy is the founder of Fertility for Colored Girls, or FFCG, and serves as the church administrator and executive minister of Community Engagement Transformation at Trinity United Church of Christ. FFCG is a national organization with currently 14 locations in the U.S., which provides education, awareness, support, and encouragement to families of color experiencing infertility and seeking to build their families of their dreams. FFCG empowers women to take charge of their fertility and reproductive health. After her own six-year battle with infertility, she and her husband, Earl, gave birth to a daughter, Shiloh. She's here to talk about her own journey, her organization, the cultural norm of silence surrounding fertility and family building topics, and what institutions of faith can do better for those who are struggling to conceive. Welcome, Reverend Stacy. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Eloise. Before I jump into all the questions, would you mind sharing a bit about your own story? Mm-hmm. Well, I am a, a native of Muncie, Indiana, and I currently live in Chicago. I moved to Chicago um, in 1995 with the hopes of uh, becoming a physician, but God disrupted my agenda and I ended up going into ministry. And so in as I went into ministry, um, you know, I continued to do what I had grew up being told to do to establish my career. Of course, I had gotten my education and to look for a husband. And so I finally ended up getting married in 2007 and I was 37 years old. And at that time, I was ready to start my family and we were ready to start our family together. And so as I forged forward, I would find out that I ended up being diagnosed with infertility. And so um, and it was not something that I was expecting because in the black community, infertility is not something that we are supposed to be experienced, as I was told. But I would find out that infertility was Uh, really an issue amongst Black women. And so in 2007, when we were diagnosed, our journey would continue for seven years. Um, And as I journeyed, I would find out more Black women were struggling with this than I knew as I began to encounter them just in my daily walk, but also in uh, in the counseling suite as I pastored and I counseled them in the church. And But what I would find out is that there was no place for us to go. Um, as women who had been kissed by nature's son, there was no safe space for us to discuss our own journeys. And so as a result of that, I felt God leading me to start in 2013 Fertility for Color Girls. And that was particularly year six of my own personal journey, um, my struggle with infertility. And, and so I started Fertility for Color Girls in 2013. And And I believe that that was the first baby that I gave birth to Mm -hmm. on my journey um, and that God needed me to give birth to that. And then in 2014, the seventh year of our journey, I would give birth to my daughter, who is now six. Mm -hmm. And so that's a little bit about my journey. So and I I mean, I I definitely am aware of FFCG or what everybody calls Fertility for Color Girls. And I know you have 14 chapters now across the country, including Detroit, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., L.A., New York. Can you tell us more about FFCG? And I mean, I know obviously it stemmed from your own experiences, but how how did it evolve? How did it come about? Well, when we started Fertility for Color Girls in 2013, I started it after my sixth failed in vitro cycle. And so my thought was, is that in opening this um, and starting Fertility for Color Girls, that I, I didn't think it would go any further than Chicago. I'm thinking that we're going to have support groups educational programs in Chicago. We will be raising money for women 
you know, not only in Chicago, but ultimately over the country. But little did I know that fertility for colored girls in seven years would make its way into 14 locations. We're about to open up our 15th location in in April, but I had no idea. But what I would find out after starting Fertility for Colored Girls in March in 2013 was just how much of a need the organization was. And so as soon as we opened, we began to get emails and communication from all people all over the country saying we need a fertility for colored girls here. And so us opening FFCG in Chicago really opened up Pandora's box for conversations to be had around infertility. And um, also, again, presented that there was a real need for an organization like us. And so when we think about fertility for colored girls, I think that we evolved because Fertility for Colored Girls, um, we do more than social media work. Mm -hmm. Um, Fertility for Colored Girls is the only grassroots organization and advocacy organization for Black women and and couples and other women of color. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it evolved because we are the only people that are doing the work that we are doing the only organization or grassroots organization that has stood firm in who we are, that we are unashamed and unapologetic about meeting the needs of Black women and couples and women of color who are struggling with infertility. And we're not ashamed about it, you know, uh, because there is a huge need. Black women and couples are struggling with infertility at two times the rate as our Caucasian sisters and brothers. We have stood firm in that. We have not at once at one time or another, we have never stood back from that and say, or apologized for that. But we have continued to stand firm and spread that word and educate the not only the Chicagoland community, but this world about this particular issue. So I think that it has evolved because of that. And Fertility for Colored Girls and the work that we do is a movement. It's not just a moment in our movement. It is a movement. And so women and men from all over this, uh, all over the U.S. as well as across the world have wanted to become a part of this movement because, again, FFCG is really the national organization for Black women and couples and women of color who are struggling with infertility, loss, and miscarriages. And so I think that's is evolved because of that. We have met a need where there has been a void for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's why the organization has evolved and grown with the quickness yeah. <laughs> and still yeah. continues to grow. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, going back to your point, so infertility affects at least 12% of all women up to age 44. And research suggests Black women are twice as likely to experience infertility as white women. Yet yeah. only 8% of Black women between the ages of 25 and 44 seek medical help to get pregnant, compared to 15% of, of white women or other women. Why do you think women of color are less likely to seek treatment? Well, I think there's it's a number of reasons that women of color are less likely to seek treatment. I think one, because of education, lack of and miseducation, particularly around when we're talking about reproductive health and fertility. Um, As I stated earlier, when I began talking, there are still a many of people that do not believe that infertility is an issue amongst Black women. Mm -hmm. So I think that education, miseducation around the topic, um, I think the shame then that is connected to infertility, that it impedes upon Black women and couples struggling, you know, or seeking access. So education, the shame around it, um, how society has has defined black bodies for, you know, from antiquity till now. I think all of that. I think in addition to that, if you are educated to think that you don't have you, you you don't have a problem or will not have a problem, it's very likely that you're not going to seek access as well. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is that when we think about fertility clinics and the messaging around fertility clinics, although many of these um, fertility clinics are doing better, the reality is is that Black women and couples do not see themselves at these clinics. So when we look at marketing, marketing still is still very heavy. We see majority white women 
We see even staff, the staff is not diverse and inclusive. And so when you can't see yourself or you don't even see a black baby or a black family or uh, women of color in your marketing, you can't see yourself and nor do you feel welcome to receive, you know, the medical service that you that you would want. I think the other big thing that we're seeing and we're hearing is this idea of medical distrust. There's so many people in the African-American community that do not trust medical providers. Um, and this, you know, this stems from so many different things from the Tuskegee experiment to when we hear stories about Henrietta Lack or, you know, uh, particularly um, uh, how um, some doctors have utilized uh, women and men for experimentation without anesthesia. Black women and couples, we enter into these doctor's offices and we don't feel like doctors are taking us seriously. And I think that those things, this idea of medical distrust um, has also served as an impediment or an obstacle for us to get into the doctor's office. I mean, if we even look outside of reproductive health, even as we're thinking about COVID vaccines, as we're in the midst of COVID, the reality is, is that people of African descent or people who have been kissed by nature's son are leery about getting the vaccine because of the experiments and the things that have been done. Again, medical distrust. And so I think these are some of the reasons why Black women and couples are not accessing care. And then when we begin to talk about finances, many women of color cannot afford treatment. You know, whether it's we don't have insurance or we may not even have the jobs, all of those things magnify um, the reasons why we will, you know, we don't, we don't gain access. And so I think that there's a myriad of reasons, a plethora of reasons why we don't see Black women and couples seeking access. And then when we begin, you know, when we get, begin to talk about the cultural issues in our community and the faith issues, of course, that impact our decisions, that's a whole nother layer mm -hmm. of, um, you know, reasons that really impact our decision making around seeking care. Yeah, because I mean, I remember when I, and granted, times have definitely changed, but when I first started and I decided that I wanted to be an egg donor and I applied, I was told that Black women didn't have infertility issues. Mm -hmm. Again, I know it was 20 years ago. Google isn't what it is today. However, that, I mean, even me hearing that, I actually assumed that they were correct. Like, oh, okay, well, maybe Black women don't really have any mm -hmm. infertility issues. I didn't know anybody in my surrounding area that had issues. Not that they didn't have it. It was just, we didn't speak out. We didn't really say anything out loud to other people so that they know what was going on behind your closed doors. You know, back in 2018, there was a survey by Women's Health Magazine and Oprah Magazine that found that over one third of Black women in the U.S. have never even talked to their partner, family, or friends about their fertility, making them the group least likely to speak out about the topic. And I, I mean, I have my own assumptions of why I think it's hard for a lot of women of color to speak out. But why do you think it's so difficult for us to kind of speak out about our fertility issues, not just even with strangers, but even with our general, you know, with the people that are close to us? I think, again, it goes back to how we have been socialized about who we are as a as a as a group, mm -hmm. as um, as as women. There's a lot of things that in our community that we have allowed to define us and define us, particularly what it means to be a quote unquote strong black woman, too. Right. And so um, and strong black women are supposed to be able to do all of these things. Right. You know, by definition of what society says about us. And so and so I think that and then on the other side of it is this idea, these cultural Again, these cultural norms in our community that, you know, in our community, what happens at home stays at home. You know what I mean? We don't you know you brought your business out there. You know, you was going to go home and you was going to get it. Exactly. And so we have that's the narrative that we have been given as people of African descent. You know, what we talk about at home stays at home and it's not anybody's business. And so, you know, um, this secret, secret, you know, that we, you know, we, we carry in our homes that we don't want other people to know. In addition to the shame that we carry um, as well. 
You know, one of the things I also talk about, Eloise, is, you know, this, I think there is, and I was just talking to someone about this yesterday, there is this almost to this cellular shame that we carry. When we think about um, even how these these stereotypes and these myths, um, particularly around Black women and couples and men and infertility have evolved and particularly out of slavery, you know, all of these things that occurred in slavery. One of the things that used to happen, particularly when we were brought to these yet to be United States of America, as well as the Caribbean, we were, of course, were brought here as commodity. We were never seen as people, as human beings. And so the whole thought was that, you know, we were supposed to be able to give birth and um, to man and woman plantations and to build an economy. Again, we were never seen as humans. And one of the things that slave narratives show is that if we were not able to uh, really be fertile, or if we were found to be infertile, what would happen was that we were treated more harshly. Mm-hmm. And so we never wanted Black men and Black women, never wanted anyone, whether it was the, the, the slave owner, we did not want them to know that we were not able to give birth because the consequences of us not able to um, give birth or conceive meant harsh treatment. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of shame that was brought upon us. And I believe also that in as much as we may experience shame for a number of other reasons, there is some cellular shame, there is some generational shame that we carry that we are also very unconscious about. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, again, society has socialized us to also not talk about it, even though communally we have been taught not to talk about it, but also even what society, how it has defined us and how it has taught us to talk about our reproductive health, our fertility, and also to see our bodies as bad rather than as good. And so I think that a lot of times Black women, we define ourselves by our ability, you know, what we're able to do and what we're not able to do. So we don't want to talk about a lot of times what we're not able to do, because if we're not able to do it, it may mean it may not make us as strong. But the reality is, is that infertility, as we know, it does not define us. Mm -hmm. It's who we are in God, in the women who we are, ultimately at the center of who we are that defines us. And so I I think all of those things ultimately impact, you know, our ability to speak, uh, to be transparent about what we're going through. And I also think just, again, how we have been educated about infertility, you know, it's a disease, right? It's a it's a diagnosis. It's not who we are. And I think that when we begin to understand that it's a diagnosis, it's a dis-ease again. But if we indeed find out that we are diagnosed with it, that we have multiple options available to us to get us to the other side or to the goal of ultimately becoming a parent. Well, yeah. And and to go back to your point, if you think about it, society, when there's a show uh, or a movie or whatever, and infertility is related, it's never on a black woman. Right. So society makes it that, you know, if you see predominantly black characters portraying on a movie, we're breeders. Yeah, you know, we're the ones who have all of the children out there and the children getting taken away and we can't raise our children and we're poor and we can't figure it out and we're uneducated. And so therefore, you know, our issue is not that we have infertility issues. Our issue is that we breed too much, that we have too too many babies. We have too many babies. We we can't afford the babies that we have. And and for the babies that we do have, we must be able to have to get on government assistance. We can't we can't afford to take care of our babies, you know, because we have too many of them. And that's the message that, you know, media, you know, a lot of media and marketing want people to to believe. And that's why it's so important that we share our own stories and we share the correct narratives and Mm -hmm. we write the story and we write it right so that people will know what's really going on in our communities. So, yeah. And we still talk about, I, I know 
people bring up the Tuskegee men and all of that and what happened there. But what about the cases that are still going on? Wasn't it last year where these women, what they were giving them hysterectomies? Isn't there a case right now in North Carolina still going on to this day when the state of North Carolina was sterilizing black women and black men and there's still lawsuits pending in 2021? Yep, yep. Sterilizing you know, so, in prison yes. and other places. I mean, so exactly. And yeah. so, you know, yeah. we we have all of that. And that's, I mean, people are people are paying attention. And so they're like, you know, they're leery. You know, we're very leery of doctors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah. And not all doctors, but there are still a many. Yes. You yes. know, calls yes. us to, they give us pause. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> that is for sure. Let's talk about the whole common suggestion of why don't you just adopt when you're struggling to build your family and the indication of let just adopt because, you know, there's so many black babies out there and there's so many that people can't afford anyway. So, you know, and all you see is white people adopting black babies. So therefore, you sh- you're you a black woman, a black man. Why not just, you know, adopt those babies that these white people are taking anyway? Yes. Yeah, we, um, I hear that. And of course, the women on this journey hear that often. And adoption is definitely a viable option. But for women and couples who want to at least have the um, option to be able to give birth I think that um, I think that that's 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 the struggle for them. They're like, give us an opportunity to at least try to give birth. It's not that I'm against adoption. That's right. It's a viable option, and I want to have the opportunity to try to give birth first um, as well. Most of the women that I do and couples that I know who are on the journey, they would love to adopt. And they want to still try to have the opportunity to give birth as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I think also what people do not realize when they are making that statement is that, again, adoption is a viable option. But for domestic adoption and as well as international adoption, it's expensive as well. Mm -hmm. So it's $30,000 and upward of $30,000 to be able to adopt a child. There are other It's a price tag attached to being able to adopt. And so whether we see white families or whoever adopting our black children, the reality is, is that adoption is not a free process either. So I think we have to take that into consideration. And we also have to understand whether you're doing foster to adopt or adoption, it is a process. And there are still costs that are that go with that. And people really still have to be called to be parents uh, of adopted children. And so (laughs) I think that, you know, we have to consider that and we cannot be so insensitive when we with that with those types of statements, because I think people become very insensitive when we say just adopt. It's, It's not a just adopt process. We just can't go knock on the door of an adoption agency and adopt a baby. Uh It's a process. It's a cost. There's a number of things that you have to experience and go through even to get to that point, just as if you choose the option of IVF or IUI. All of them are processes are involved. And again, I feel that whatever path that you are chosen to do, it is a calling Uh and is an assignment. Uh And so we have to be discerning of the path that we are called to walk down in order to embrace the child. So whether that's adoption or whether that's a gestational carrier, whether that's IVF or IUI, we have to be discerning uh, of that particular path. But it's not just adopt, nor is it just do IVF, nor is it just do IUI. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have to take in consideration all that, the entire process of you know, whichever path we choose. So definitely there's a lot of insensitivity around that particular statement when people say that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And whatever path you choose for yourself is the path for you, exactly. not for the next person. Exactly. Yeah. And everybody's path, everybody's path to parenthood is different, right? It's not deficient, but all of our path to parenthood is different. And so um, we have to honor and celebrate the path for that person 
when they walk down that path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I know faith and God in the Black community is is huge. And in a recent article, you talked about how well-intentioned churches can end up hurting rather than help those struggling with infertility by characterizing the inability to conceive as, quote, God's plans. And as an ordained minister and as a woman who has been through the struggle of infertility, what do you encourage other faith leaders to consider in what they say to you know, individuals and families that are struggling with with this disease? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that I try to encourage other faith leaders to really educate themselves around reproductive health and fertility, to really be sensitive to their members when they come to them and meet them where they are, to do more listening also than talking, because a lot of times we superimpose our thoughts and some God talk upon people Um, rather than really listening to them and what they're going through. Um, I also encourage them to really be inclusive in their teaching and their preaching on Mother's Day and even throughout the year, because the reality is, is in each one of their congregations, you will find someone struggling with infertility, miscarriage, and loss, and to be sensitive to that loss to the grief that those women and couples are experiencing. And again, to meet them where they are rather than superimposing their own plan um, and even what God is trying to do in their lives to hurt them more deeply. And so that's what I try to do with pastors and you know other um, lay leaders who are ministering to women and couples in, in the church that we have to be sensitive. I know at my own church, our pastor, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, is very, very sensitive as, you know, throughout the year, but particularly on Mother's Day, he is very intentional about acknowledging everyone, you know, where they are. So whether you are a mother, whether you are a woman who is experiencing infertility, miscarriage, or loss, whether you are a woman who has lost your child or your mother, we try to be very, very inclusive with our language and our ministry, not just, again, not just on Mother's Day or not just on Father's Day, but throughout the year. And so I think that it's an educational, again, an educational process for um, women and men who are um, struggling. You know, one of the things, Eloise, I have the privilege of doing now is being an adjunct professor in a seminary, and I teach pastoral care. And so always in my pastoral care class, I now have a component that also teaches seminarians how to care for women and couples who not only struggle with infertility, but also, you know, struggle with miscarriage, loss, and stillborn as well, and who are going through different treatment or thinking about adoption. And so I think that that's the other piece is ensuring that is a part of seminary education to educate. Um, pastors, and then also um, so that they might educate their congregation. And where they feel like they can't do it, they've asked me to come in and share with their members as well, or to even help us to start chapters of Fertility for Colored Girls. And so that's how I have sought to educate other pastors and clergy and faith leaders around the issue. Yeah, because I definitely feel that with some well-intentioned communities of faith that sometimes they end up sending out the wrong message mm-hmm. um, and adding actually more hurt and fuel mm-hmm. to the file of people who are struggling with infertility as opposed to being there and giving, and like you said, giving the encouragement and, and, and making sure that they understand that every single path, your journey is not going to be the same as it was for the last person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It could be a, a completely different path than you or I and how we had our own journey. So um, I think that 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 is huge. I mean, up until I would say probably four years ago uh, on Mother's Day, uh, my church would always you know, it was always about the women who had children, everybody stand up, congratulate the mothers and and so on and so forth until our pastor's daughter-in-law went through infertility and they had to have that journey. And for the first time up until again, four years ago was when they actually acknowledged all of the women, whether you had a child, whether you had lost the child, whatever the case might be, whether you was trying to have a child, they finally made that shift 
in acknowledging, you know, even if you are a mother at heart, you know, and you never, you don't have a child sitting right next to you doesn't mean that you are no less a mother. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things that we've also done with Fertility for Color Girls to help is that during National Fertility Awareness Month, we um, take the time to provide litanies and educational information to pastors so that they can share during National Infertility Awareness Month with their churches. And that has helped, you know, to raise that awareness um, because the reality is, is just as you were sharing, like with your pastor, until it hits home, people really don't, you know, they don't embrace it. And so and some people, especially in the Black community, so many Black pastors, whether women or men, still do not realize that this is such a huge issue in our community. And so, again, it's uh, again, it's a teachable moment for us all the time to be able to share, you know, with pastors. And I have the privilege, of course, you know, and the honor because I am ordained minister to be able to share that in a way that most of them understand and are able to receive it because I am a colleague. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that that has been helpful for uh, for me and for us as we have tried to, again, open that door for education with those pastors and to continue to raise awareness so that they can care, provide better congregational care and pastoral care for those persons who are struggling with infertility, miscarriage and loss as well. What do you, so what would you say to someone that, and I have heard this many a times, that um, especially when they're working with a gestational carrier and that these, these people that are working with a gestational carrier are playing God? Well, I would... Um, I would take them back to a number of stories about in the biblical texts um, where I think that we can find whether it's um, the um, the earliest stories of gestational carriers where God used women and men to bring forth life. I mean, even if we think about Mary, the reality is, is that I always tell women and couples when I share her story that if we really think about it, Mary becomes the first story of divine uh, insemination. Mm-hmm. I think that she is our first story of, she's our first story of IUI before IUI is even created. But she also becomes a carrier of the one that we call our Savior, Jesus Christ. And her husband, Joseph, becomes the adoptive father of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so if we would take a, another look at the narratives in the biblical text, we would be able to see how God was, we can see God's providential hand even through history and how God used and brought different lives together in order to bring bring about God's providential plan. And I think that when we think about a gestational carrier and people using gestational carrier, I think what God is doing is bringing lives together in order to create community and to bring forth life to the world through the world, just as God did with Jesus and so many people throughout the biblical text. And so I think those those are the stories I share. I, I, I really try to force people to take a different look at the stories in the biblical text and how these stories have been told to us about what God was doing and how God moved throughout their lives. And just as God moved throughout Mary's life, uh, Hannah's life, Elizabeth's life, Sarah's life, God is doing the same thing in our life. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would suggest. No one's playing God, but we have to allow God to be God in our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And I know we keep talking about the women, but where do you, where do the men fit into this discussion? Because I think we Ooh. always tend to leave them out. Yeah, yeah. Well, the truth of the matter is, as we know, Eloise, men are struggling with infertility as well. There is a such thing as male factor infertility. In the Black community, there's just as much shame around male factor infertility, Black male factor infertility, as there is around female, you know, Black women who are struggling with infertility. What Fertility for Colored Girls is um, trying to do is that we have spaces for men to talk. We have secret pages on Facebook. 
And actually, um, in the next uh, quarter, we will be rolling out a new component of fertility for colored girls, fertility um, for colored girls and the bras. And so really providing education for men who are struggling, because we have a lot of men that seek us out who are struggling with infertility, but also men who are trying to support their spouses or their significant others through that. And so we're trying to make sure that we provide the men the support that they need and the access to doctors um, who will care for them rightly as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so um, really in the last year, this has become even more apparent for us as more men um, and couples are contacting us about, you know, about the need of support for them struggling with male factor infertility as well. So yeah, so it's definitely an issue. And, you know, a lot of education needs to be done around that as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. So I want to go back to the Hope It Forward program. So, Mm -hmm. and ask you about the Hope It Forward program. And I understand it encourages individuals to donate their unopened and unexpired medications to fertility clinics to be used by women who can't afford them. Mm -hmm. One, how I mean, I think it's a great idea because I know plenty of women who couldn't afford the expensive, very expensive medications. And then I knew women that had all these medications that they paid for and they couldn't utilize them anymore and they were having a hard time throwing them away. So would you mind sharing, you know, that about that program? Yeah. So usually what happens if we have people, we have a lot of people who contact us and say, hey, I have some leftover medications that are unexpired and unopened. And um, if the clinic allows, particularly a clinic, you know, if their clinic allows, we work with the clinic so that they can bring those medications in with the hope of connecting them with a woman who cannot afford those medications to to be able to utilize those uh, medications. We've also had some clinics where some of our women that are in those states that we have been able to kind of match with those clinics. You know, a woman that has medicine to hope it forward at at the same clinic that another woman is using. So we've been able to navigate those, you know, navigate that um, so that the other woman who didn't have could receive that because of the relationships that we have with those clinics. Of course, COVID has created a little bit of pause around that because of everything that is happening. But in the places that we have still been able to do so, it has been very beneficial for women, you know, who are struggling. And a lot of people are, you know, happy to be able to do it because they don't want to waste, you know, those medications that they paid all this money for. And, um, you know, the clinics have been, again, very accommodating and supportive to help us to be able to, of course, to support those women who are in need. Yeah. And which, like I said, it is absolutely needed. So, um, and another program that you guys have in, so in December of 2020, your organization in partnership with Kind Body awarded families who had experienced infertility and family building difficulty, uh, $50,000 in grants to help them pursue their dreams of parenthood. Can you share a bit about that project? Uh huh. Yes. And so um, last year, probably around May, we were approached by um, Kind Body in the midst of the pandemic and also in the midst of protest as they were looking for, they were looking to support an organization that was supporting Black women um, struggling with infertility around, you know, again, during, the, you know, the Black Lives Matter protest. They wanted to be able to, you know, show and to you know, support an organization that was helping in their particular area of expertise. And so after speaking with them, they made the decision to support us. Again, we are the only people that are really doing this uh, specified work, although we are inclusive, but we are um, also, we have a niche. Our niche is really to raise this education for Black women and couples and other women of color struggling with infertility. So they um, contributed this $50,000 grant and. Um, the applications, I believe, was released in June of 2020, Eloise. And in 24 hours, we had over 113 women to apply for the application. By the time we um, the application had expired, um, we had over 324 women and couples who had applied for this grant. And so, um, which to me, as I share with everyone, really speaks to the need. Because um, all of the, none of these 
persons had any insurance. They did not have the wherewithal to be able to move forward to become parents. So again, it speaks to the need um, um, of this, that Black women and couples, again, are an underserved population of women and couples in this particular area of reproductive health and fertility. And so um, in October, I believe, because it took us a while to get through all of those applications, we were able to name the four individuals of those 324 plus applications who we were able to give. We gave three free in vitro cycles away, uh, plus uh, one cryopreservation to a sister who was seeking to preserve her eggs. And we also, in partnership with EMD Serrano, was able to give two uh, medication grants to two of our IVF, free IVF winners. So not only did they have their in vitro cycles paid for, but they also had free medications as well. So we were really awesome. grateful. It was a very emotional time for us. Um, um, and Kind Body is just such an awesome, awesome group to work with. You know, they get it. And, you know, that's what I appreciate about Kind Body. You know, it's a, it's a fertility clinic started by women and led by women. And then they get they they really get this idea around you know um around cultural sensitivity and that you know each and every group of people have their own unique experiences mm-hmm. and how that and and particularly for black women and couples that we are truly an underserved population and they are doing whatever they can to help and so i'm just really grateful for that partnership we are um going to continue um this year and so People should be hearing more about that partnership and, you know, us offering more grants on this year. But that's really how it came came about. And those women are now moving forward. So hopefully this year we'll be having some really good news because they're already in the process of beginning cycles. Already praising God for the good news that we anticipate for for Mm -hmm. sure. So I'm, I'm curious. What about fertility and family building do you intend on telling your own daughter, which is different from what we were told when we were growing up? I'm going to be very honest and transparent with her, you know, about, I think the first place I want to start with her is that, you know, for me, Eloise, as I hear a lot of Black women, many of us were told, don't be fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, girl, don't be fast. You know what I mean? You know. You know, all of that. Be a statistic. Be a statistic, all of that. And for me, the first place, uh, you know, I have started is I've shared with my daughter that mommy and daddy struggle to have you, Mm -hmm. number one. Mm -hmm. So being very transparent in that narrative so that she understands that we did struggle. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so she really is beginning to understand her birth story and even how special she is, Right. But also for me, I think what's important for me, instead of sharing the narrative about not being a statistic or not being fast, what I want to do is, what I've been trying to do is to help her to prepare her body. Yes. So that's my story. That's my approach with her is for her to prepare her body so that by the time she is ready, because she is already at six years old saying, I am going to have kids, I'm going to get married, <laughs> already telling me that. So I know God has already placed that in you know, her spirit. Um, she's a nurturer. You can see it. And again, that's her narrative to me. So my goal as a mother is to be a good steward of her by not only being transparent and educating her, but to help her prepare her body holistically yes. so that by the time she is ready, yep. that she will be in a better position than I am. Yep. And, it, and if that's freezing her eggs too, if she wants to, uh, I will tell her that's your insurance, you know, do so, mm-hmm. you know, she will be able to do that. So again, you know, really providing holistic and honest education to her. I spent a lot of time, um, Eloise in my early years of uh, my profession, doing a lot of um, uh, community health and education around sex education. But the one piece that was missing was more of this preparation part, but also this fertility discussion, I think, in the community. We did sex education in the 90s. We did what we did. The curriculum was set up to help kids not get pregnant, Right. right? Right. But again, it was not created to prepare young people yes. to be ready so that when they were ready, you know, at a later age or whatever age, they would be of the mind and the spirit 
to be able to be good parents and to make some very um, healthy and wise decisions around their reproductive health. And that's what I want my daughter to do. I want her to be able to make healthy and whole decisions and informed decisions around her reproductive health. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to keep anything from her. I want to be honest with her from the beginning. And I think really as um, parents, we all should be having that mindset of being willing to educate our children from now, from when they're young. You know, I, I mean, I was definitely in a different mindset by the time my daughter became a teenager and is now a young adult and my sons as well. And being able to educate them, not just about sex education, but like you said, about their fertility and what does that mean? And the decisions that they make now, how it might affect them long term. And to ensure that not only are we educating our own, but educating the masses mm-hmm. and, and informing the masses. Because one thing that I do see in the day-to-day working in this industry is how many people now are having infertility issues. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it granted before, I'm sure there was a lot, but people didn't speak about it. But there's still a whole lot that we don't know about. Just the masses of how many people are now having infertility issues. And I'm not just talking about people in their 40s or their 50s. We're getting clients now who are in their late 20s, who are in their early 30s, who need to assistance of a gestational carrier or need the assistance of an of an egg donor because she grew, she was born without a uterus. Or at at 19 years old, had to have a hysterectomy. You didn't hear about those things, you know, 30, 30, 40 years ago. That was just unheard of. Yeah. And the thing is, is it may have been happening, but no one was talking about it. And so we have a responsibility to tell the stories. Um, Because, again, like you, I am hearing, you know, stories of particularly Black women who are finding out about fertility challenges at much younger ages. I have heard about 15-year-olds who have already been diagnosed as premenopausal. Mm. So, you know, and of course we know that fibroids and young, young girls are being diagnosed with fibroids at younger ages in the Black community than any other culture. So certainly, I mean, we owe it to um, the young, from, to this generation as well as generations to come to educate them, to share our stories, honest stories. Uh, we can no longer afford to live in shame behind bolted doors. We have to break the silence and break the cycles so that what we have experienced as women, um, it, it doesn't continue to happen amongst you know generations to come. So we do, we owe it to our daughters. We owe it to our, our nieces. We owe it to our next door neighbor. And we owe it to generations that are yet to be born. But we ha- it has to start with us to break this cycle. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. What would you like the black and brown community to know when it comes to their family building journeys? I want them to know, number one, that they are not alone, that there are organizations out here like Fertility for Colored Girls that is here to support them and they don't have to walk this journey alone. Um, And so whether it's education or just simply to listen to them and to give them the tools for their toolbox to build their families, they're not alone. I want them to know that family building is different for every family. Mm -hmm. Um, No path is the same. Paths are different, but those paths are not deficient. Whatever path they choose or chooses them, the reality is, is that um, the gift at the end, the baby at the end of the path um, is will be theirs, will be worth the wait. And again, it will be their child and they're not going to love that child any different regardless of the path. And so I also encourage them to be open. So be open to the past. We have so many options available to us, although we have not been, uh, most of us have not been educated about all of the options that are available to us. There are so many options. And where there are options, there are possibilities. And where there are possibilities, there are miracles waiting to happen. And so to be open to the possibilities and to the options available to them 
to build their family. Because at the end of the day, this is about them becoming a parent. And again, where there is um, there is a possibility and there are options available for them to meet their goals. And so I think that that's what I want them to know and that there is hope wherever there are options and possibilities, there are hope and they can be a parent if they believe that they are called to be a parent and that they want to be a parent. And so that's what I say to people who are seeking to build their families, but know they're not alone. There are people here to advocate for them and to support them on their journey in order to build their families. Absolutely. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for your time, Reverend Stacy, and for all that you're doing for the community and for uh, fertility for colored girls and for sharing your story and for all the hard work. Cause I know, I mean, I've known you for many, many years and I know how, how flying from one place to the next and on this show and that show and trying to, so I know you, you have been putting your heart, your mouth, your, your everything exactly where, uh, you know, I think God has led you to, to be. So I really do thank you for everything that you're doing for, for all of us, really. Thank you, Eloise for that. And I thank you for your work that you're doing. You know, I've always called you the fertility angel. <laughs> so, you know. well, thank you. <laughs> so thank you for your work and your support, all that you're doing in your business and how you're continuing to educate the community around this issue. And uh, we're just praying, praying, continue God's blessings upon you um, and the work of your heart and your hands that God has assigned you. So thank you for, again, for your work and for having me on today. I appreciate you and thank God for you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I hope you found this discussion helpful as you weigh your next steps. You can follow Fertility Cafe on our new Instagram and Facebook channel under Family Inceptions. If you haven't yet, go to your listening platform of choice and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We'd also love you to share Fertility Cafe with friends and family members who would benefit from the information shared. Join us next week for another conversation on modern family building. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own.